I call myself an attorney by training, but an educator by passion, because I started to realize that education was our true civil rights movement. That if I could give kids and people that look like me the tools to fight for themselves through a proper and strong education, I wouldn't have to fight for them as an attorney. And so that's why I finally signed up for the Building Excellence Schools Fellowship. And how many years later? 15, 16, 16 years later, here I am with five schools in Memphis and getting ready to open a school in Birmingham, which is another leg on the civil rights journey. Welcome to the Beyond Listening podcast. Brought to you by We Are Open Circle, this is a show for anyone wanting to understand the realities and key principles of organization and human development and change. We bring you into the lives of our remarkable guests so that you can understand the challenges they've faced and the practical lessons they've learned, so you can live better, achieve the success you really want, and adapt to thrive. We're your hosts, Adam Rumack and Miriam Jones. You can join us each week as we work out how to live more purposeful, inspired lives for ourselves, our organizations, and our communities. It is such a pleasure today to be here with Roblin Webb, the founder and CEO of Freedom Prep Charter Schools in Memphis. And we've had the pleasure to be working with Roblin over the last couple of months. And we were so excited when you said, yes, I'll come on Beyond Listening podcast. We sent you the William Stafford poem, The Way It Is, before the interview. And we usually just start by asking you a question way back when you were a child. And if you can recognise now looking back on your childhood, what the thread was or is that you've been following to where you are now. So anything on the thread? For sure. Yes, it's interesting. (laughs) The thread The thread has always been civil rights, interestingly enough. It started when I was in, I think, first grade, probably six years old. And at six years old, you often don't, unless, like as a Black person in America, you don't recognize that you're different or that you are Black until someone tells you. My best friend in the sixth grade, and I grew up in a small town in southern Arkansas, and so my best friend was a white girl named Kitten in the sixth grade. We played every single day together. And then one day she came to me and said that she couldn't play with me anymore because she didn't like Black people. And she said, just like some people don't like green beans, I don't like Black people. Of course, as a six-year-old, you are totally confused. Like, what does this mean? What does this have to do with us being friends? I can't even imagine the conversation my parents had to have with me at six years old. Like, how do you explain to this child that her friend does not want to be with her anymore just because of the color of her skin? But that started to open me up to the differences in this country between Black and whites. I didn't know it, but I was an avid reader. And so time went on. And as time went on, I would pick up books in my house. So my dad had, I can't remember exact, the exact title, but the Nat Turner book about Nat Turner's revolution. He had Black Panther Manifesto, and he had the autobiography of Malcolm X. And it probably was somewhere around middle school where I started picking up these books and started reading more and more about what was going on with people that look like me in this country and recognizing it even more and more. And so I knew when I went to undergrad, I wanted to do something that helped Black people in this country. But in my head, I just wanted to make enough money to help Black people causes. I didn't think I actually wanted to get my hands dirty and to do the dirty work. I knew I wanted to help and I wanted to be a civil rights person. But I was like, "Ah, I'm going to be a pediatrician. I'm going to be a doctor because those people make a lot of money and I can contribute those causes back to civil rights issues. 
But as fate, the universe and God would have it, that was not my path. And so I didn't fail, but got close to failing some of my science classes in college, but fell in love with Toni Morrison as an author. And again, of course, you know Toni Morrison, her genre is slavery, post-slavery reconstruction, civil rights. So I fell in love with Toni Morrison. I would stay up all night reading her books. And then I discovered the major urban studies that allowed me to take the classes that aligned more to my interests and my passion. Again, not really knowing necessarily what I was going to do, but knowing that this was something that I was really interested in. Clearly, biochemistry was something I was not interested in, and I did not, it was not my path in the, in the least bit. And so then the last kind of step that happened for me that kind of got me closer to the path was I went to my sociology professor, Dr. McGowan, I think was his name. And I love Dr. McGowan. I went to college in Memphis, born and raised in the South, always in the South. Dr. McGowan was from New York. And so he had a different kind of swag and style to him. And I said to him, you know, I was thinking about going to law school or to grad school in sociology. And he was the chair of the sociology department. He's like, "Mm -mm, go to law school. And I was like, why would I go to law? He said something to the effect of you have more or you have more to do. Or I can't remember exactly. And of course, you rewrite history in your head. But either way, he said, there's more for you in law school than there is in grad school and sociology. And so that's kind of what sent me on my path to law school. And I wanted to do civil rights, but that changed as well. So I went to undergrad, like I said, in Memphis. I went to Rhodes College, which was also an interesting dynamic because Rhodes is a small private liberal arts school. And at the time, Rhodes had probably around 1,300 students. And in my incoming class, when I came in, there may have been 10 students of color. Let me clarify, students of African descent. There was one student that was an immigrant from Nigeria and then the rest of us. And there were 10 out of a class of probably around 300. So we'll also experience some interesting race dynamics in college. And I do remember when I graduated, I remember walking across the stage and putting my fist up. And so I was like, all right, okay. Revolutionary was in my blood in some capacity. It's just, what was I going to do with that? I left Memphis and went to law school at Rutgers in New Jersey. It was between Rutgers or Howard, and I couldn't afford Howard. I wanted to go to Howard, particularly because I had been at Rhodes and Rhodes was a very white environment, totally different, just a different background in general. Like when I got to Rhodes, there were students that were driving Mercedes Benz and BMWs, like undergrad. And I was pulling up barely in my raggedy Mitsubishi Mirage. And so I saw not only like race differences, but also socioeconomic differences were really stark at Rhodes. Left went to Rutgers, Camden, New Jersey, which again is a pretty interesting town, interesting dynamic because it was the, at the time, I think the poorest city in America and one of the toughest in terms of crime. And the irony is I am from Camden, Arkansas. So I moved from Camden, Arkansas to Camden, New Jersey. When I got to Rutgers and I got to New Jersey, at first I hated it because it was night and day. Culture shock for me, of course. I often tell people I had never even met a person of Dominican descent until I moved to New Jersey. That's how unexposed I was coming from the South and in a small town. But it was eye-opening for me, and I fell in love with it. And I swore at that moment, 1999, 2000, I was never moving back down South. Of course, my plan is not the plan that's set out for me, right? My own personal plan is never the plan that's set out for me. And so I graduated from law school. I went to law school and got a law degree and a master's degree in politics and public affairs. I said, yep, civil rights law, this is what I want to do. At the time, it wasn't really a practice. Civil rights law was not a huge practice. That's happened in the past few years. 
And so being the oldest of my parents, I also saw that they were getting older and said, well, I should probably move back down south to take care of my parents or to at least get closer to them. Even though I love the Northeast, Suar would never come back down south. But something told me, something pushed me back down south. So I moved back down to Memphis and I worked for a law firm in Memphis that actually was the legal counsel for the Memphis City School District at the time. Now, the dynamics of the law firm were interesting. Again, I tend to find myself in places where I am one of the only or one of the first. And so I was the only African-American female attorney in the law firm. I was also probably one of three Democrats in the law firm. I was also too young to know not to talk about politics like in a corporate environment. And there were two other Black attorneys and they were both partners at the law firm, one Democratic, one Republican. A year and a half later, a year and a half, I would say, of misery, hating practicing law, hating the environment. Clearly, I was not in the right environment, like literally hating going to work. Also feeling like I'm on the wrong side. So I was defending the school district and defending them against the very people I felt like I was supposed to be serving. I remember clearly having a case against a family that was suing the school district for food poisoning. First time in court and the judge asked them, you know, do you want to get an attorney? This woman here has been trained to do this. And I remember the father saying, nope, we can settle this right now. We can settle this right now. Like it's an ongoing joke with my family. And I beat them terribly. It was terrible and because they didn't really have a case. But I also felt like I felt a couple of things. One, again, I'm going against people that don't know. And I'm going against the people that I actually am here and I want to serve. I'm not here to protect corporations. I'm not here to protect organizations. I am here to do something for my people. And this is not what I'm doing. Outside of the treatment going on at the law firm. About a year and a half into that, I was constantly getting critical feedback on my work. The attorneys were saying a lot of different things. And I remember going to one of the partners, one of the Black partners, and saying, can you look at this motion? Can you look at this brief that I drafted? I really need your help. I keep getting negative feedback. And he passed it back to me and said, you should just go to lunch with them more. And so in that moment, like it was a realization that it wasn't necessarily my work because you start to question, you question your work, you question your intelligence, you question your competence when you're constantly getting hit. But then in that moment, I realized, no, it's not my work, it's that I don't fit in. And again, like I said, I didn't, I was too young and, and green to know not to say that I'm a Democrat, not to like, not to talk about the things that I was passionate about. And so probably a few weeks after that, I had two partners come and sit down at my desk and say, you know, it's just not the right fit. Your last day is going to be Friday. And that was maybe on a Monday. And they wanted my last day to be Friday. At the moment, it stung. I probably went to my car and cried. And then it was a wash of relief over me. <laughs> it was the biggest relief that I had. It was like, oh, my God, they've released me from something that was just, they were right. It was not the right fit. But it was a learning experience to actually launch me on my path of what I actually really needed to do. And it was ironic that I was doing some of the legal work for the Memphis City School District because then that led me into education. I left the law firm, got a call from one of the other Democratic attorneys that had left a few weeks before. I don't know how she left, voluntarily involved. I have no idea, but I got a call from her to work, do advanced work on the Kerry campaign. Most fun job I've ever had, traveling all over the country, doing advance work before for John Kerry. Of course, he lost, but it was a great experience all over the country. And then when I came back, I ended up landing a job with a education nonprofit, New Leaders for New Schools. 
and I was deputy director of that program. It was at New Leaders where I felt like, okay, I am doing what I'm supposed to do. New Leaders trained principals or people that wanted to be school leaders to turn around struggling schools in urban school districts. And so I was working to recruit folks for the program and also raise money for the program. I finally felt competent. I felt like people respected my opinion and respected like my intelligence, loved working for the program. And I was at New Leaders for about three and a half years. In the interim, I decided to volunteer to coach a mock trial team at a high school here in Memphis. And like I said, I was working for New Leaders. I felt like I was doing a lot of the work that I was supposed to do, but there was still an urge like, okay, you still need to do more. There's more you need to do. Again, there's always an itch. There's always more. There's always God or the universe directing you in paths like, okay, there's more. There's more work for you to do here. So I volunteered at this high school, local high school, that was led by one of our new leaders principals to coach a mock trial. Fell in love with the kids. Kids fell in love with me. I never had really deep interactions with kids. But what was so disheartening for me was finding out that although the kids that I was coaching did great on the state assessment, like they were fine on the state assessment, their ACT scores were too low to get them into four-year colleges. They wanted to be attorneys. They finally saw someone that looked like them, talked like them, was from a similar background, and they wanted to be attorneys. But we weren't preparing them for the even basic steps to get to law school and to become attorneys. And it was at that moment I was like, okay, I really do need to do more. I don't know what that more is. I also knew I didn't want to be a principal. Ironically, I ended up being a principal. I knew I didn't really want to raise money full time. Ironically, I ended up having to raise money. Like all the things I knew I did not want to do because I saw what those folks went through, I ended up having to do through starting Freedom Prep. My boss at New Leaders for New Schools had decided to leave and go work for the chancellor in D.C., the new chancellor. I knew I didn't want his job for those very reasons. I didn't want to be the executive director of the New Leaders program. And then a friend sends me an email about an organization called Building Excellent Schools. It said, oh, this sounds like you. And I was like, no, it doesn't. I'm like, I don't want to start a school. Are you kidding me? No, I don't want to do this. But I went ahead and applied anyway. I applied probably on a Monday. I had a phone interview that Tuesday, and they were flying me to Boston that weekend to interview in person for the fellowship. Building Excellence Schools, the organization that trains professionals, whether they're traditional educators or not, to open and run high-performing college prep charter schools in urban areas. When they flew me to Boston that weekend for an, an interesting, intense interview, I got it on the spot. They basically called me as soon as I left and said, we want you to be the first Building Excellence Schools fellow in the state of Tennessee. It was in that moment that I was like, okay, I won't say the words I want to say, but I basically cussed and was like, mm, this, is not, this is not what I want to do. This is, I'm like, this is not, I didn't see this as my path, but I accepted it and said, okay, let's go ahead and do this. And so even through new leaders for new schools and a mock trial team, what I started to recognize that, and I call myself an attorney by training, but an educator by passion, because I started to realize that education was our true civil rights movement. That if I could give kids and people that look like me the tools to fight for themselves through a proper and strong education, I wouldn't have to fight for them as an attorney. And so that's why I finally signed up for the Building Excellence Schools Fellowship. And how many years later? 15, 16, 16 years later, here I am with five schools in Memphis and getting ready to open a school in Birmingham, which is another leg on the civil rights journey. I think I learned through your story, Roblin, you can't fight with God. And no, God, no, 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 you get slapped back every time. 
<laughs> yeah, he did. Slap, back you go. <laughs> I want to ask you what may seem like a dumb question, but I want to ask for your take on it, which is what is civil rights? Not the history of it, but what does it mean to you? What does civil rights mean to you? It's interesting. It's an interesting question. And I've been thinking about it more, particularly after the events this past week in Tennessee with the legislators, the young Black men that were expelled from the state legislature. I think what it means to me is at least getting as close to as possible as on a level playing field. We will never, and this is not me being pessimistic, this is me being realistic, we are so far behind because of the years spent in slavery, African-American people in this country. We're so far behind and didn't have opportunities for so long that catching up is unrealistic without certain things being in place. And like for me, civil rights is let me put people in the position where they at least have a fighting chance and a level playing field. Let me educate kids to be in the state legislature so that they don't have a majority and they can't expel for ridiculous reasons. But for me, it's about creating a closer to a level playing field now, knowing that the starting point was always so much further and it, and it continues to be so much further behind. I just, in the privilege of being able to sit back and listen to your story and not have to think of the next question, the question about following a thread and starting with the revolutionaries, the people that we would think of as the revolutionaries, Malcolm X, Nat Turner, and you waving your fist at graduation and finding your own revolutionary path. And I could see that in the work that we did in person together, that mission-driven spirit that you lead people forward with feels just completely coherent with the people that inspired you as a young person in our world that with all its complexity and there's so many paths to revolution and change. And I just wanted to witness that back. We don't often hear as coherent a story, as coherent a thread, mm -hmm. I should say, that one is following. And then the way that God or the universe, as you said, sort of shapes what that's going to mean for us and for the people that we serve and carry forward. Thank you. This is awesome. I appreciate that. It's interesting. I went to a shaman in Florida, an African shaman, a priest, and he said to me, he was like, it's very rare that people find themselves so quickly on their path. He's like, it usually takes people years to figure out like the path they're supposed to be on. He was like, I don't know how you did it, but you found pretty quickly this path that you were supposed to be on. And even this is despite me and my battles and fights against it, right? Even to this day, like I'm still like, am I still supposed to do this? Come on, give me a sign. Yeah, yeah it's almost archetypal in mm -hmm. that sense, you know, mm -hmm. that someone handed you some signposts to that archetype that you were going to live and you're like, okay, now i got to figure out what it's going to look like for me. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. And it's interesting in your story that what I kept on hearing was the places of ignition. Like, yes, I know mm -hmm. it's civil rights. And that all of the stories kind of mirrored the signposts along the way. And I also heard in your story an openness to actually changing track as you went along. And I've noticed that in you from just mm -hmm. the short time we've known each other, that openness to like, okay, I don't want to do it, but... <laughs> There's kind of a devotion of following in there, you know, like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to follow, follow the lead. I'm wondering, I heard your way into freedom prep, and I'm wondering if there's also a founding story for you. One of those stories when you recognised what it was and you sort of saw it come to life. So I'm interested in that kind of founding story of the early days of freedom prep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
is interesting because I just had a conversation with my spiritual teacher this morning. And she said to me, you changed into who you were going to be at 29 years old. And I was like, how'd you know that? I was like, I, you knew so like, I, like you, you clearly knew this. And I said, yeah, it was around 2930 when I started the fellowship and I felt a shift in me as a person. I didn't like it. I felt more serious and I felt more focused. I didn't like what was happening, but clearly it was put in me. The first days of Freedom Prep, and it's interesting that you asked too, because again, you constantly get reminders, right? And so I remember the very first day, the very first opening. So it had been a long haul just to get it open. I didn't find a building for the first school until maybe six weeks before we were supposed to open. And we had to go through about a quarter of a million dollars in renovations just to even get it up to code to open nearly like almost not being able to open because fire code told us the weekend, the Friday before that we couldn't open because we had some errors in the system. My architect, thank God, begged them to let us open. But that very first day in August, I don't know if you've been in the South in August, but it is hot. It's hot and humid. And the Freedom Prep uniform is a button down shirt, a tie and a cardigan, like full uniform. The doors open at 730 and I had, of course, been hustling, trying to find kids, 100 kids, 100 sixth graders to start and to bet on me, bet on an unknown that I was going to prepare them for college and beyond. And so we opened the doors at 730 and it had to have been 630, 615 a.m. And this little girl with shiny, beautiful, shiny brown skin, full uniform shows up. Gacery, Gacery Ann, right? And I remember because both of my parents were there. And they were taking pictures. And I've got a picture of Gacery and in full uniform, hot as hell in August. But yet Gacery was in perfect full. She, she was so cute, a perfect full uniform. I think her family were immigrants from Senegal. And she was the ver first kid that showed up. Everyone was excited. It was almost like, a, like, oh, my God, this is real. Right. I remember that being real. I remember even prior to that, when I had to get a payroll company, I was like, oh, this is real. Like, oh, my God, I got to pay. Like, this is really happening. It was scary, but also just like having to pay people is it means you have a real deal business. Right. It doesn't until people start to show up. We had all of our teachers ready. Gay's free and shows up in full uniform. And I remember shaking her hand saying, I'm Miss Webb. Welcome to Freedom Prep. And then maybe 20 minutes later, cars just started lining up. I get emotional thinking about it because that was just, it was the birth of a movement that has just gotten bigger than me, to say the least. And I get reminders, despite the stress, despite everything that goes on, because schools are living organisms that have all the issues that living organisms have. But despite the stress, I get reminders of that very first day and that birth. A couple of weeks ago, we had a job fair. And this tall guy showed up. I was like, this guy looks really familiar, super tall guy. And he's like, hey, Ms. Webb. And I'm like, Ms. Webb, he's like, I'm Gacery's brother. So Gacery's older brother used to drop them off at school every day. And so he shows up at the hiring fair. And then I was like, oh, how is Gacery? Show me pictures. He said, oh, she's a nurse at Labonner. I was like, oh my God. I'm like, this is, you know, I don't have children of my own, but I raised these kids. I raised these kids to fulfill the dream that I saw a while back. Didn't know what that dream would look like. But Gacery is a nurse at Labonner. I got a Facebook message from a parent 
maybe about a month ago, and this was during a really rough time. And the Facebook message said that Bria, who was another one of our sixth grade founding kids, is graduating from Vanderbilt Law School and they want me to speak at her graduation. I was just like, this is why I do this work. Because guess what? Bria's going to be a lawyer. Bria may become a judge. Bria may be that person that makes the decision to change the Tennessee legislature one day for Black people. And so that Black people actually have that equal and that level playing field. And so kind of from those small sparks and those moments, and mind you, Bria Norgasery graduated from Freedom Prep because we didn't have a high school when they got to eighth grade. We paused a year and then started a high school. But despite that, they remember that very first day in sixth grade in 2009, showing up as 11 and 12. And I still have pictures of them in their uniform. I have pictures of them in their college T-shirts. But they remember that and their families remember that impact on them. And they will continue to carry that torch of civil rights through changing society. So for me, I'm not the, I've never been the, despite the fist and all, I was also in college, right? But I've never been the loud like rah, 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 revolution. I'm not the person out there protesting. That's just not my style. What I am, though, is the subtle civil rights person, the one that's like, okay, we need to change the system. The revolutionaries and the people that protest change moments. I'm trying to change the system for Black people in this country. I feel like we need a long pause after that. (laughs) It's an honor (laughs) to be with you because you are doing it. And people might not be able to see me, but I have I'm moved by your story and by the story of Freedom Prep. So thank you in those beginnings. And I kept on wondering, what is it? What are the principles that carry that movement forward for those kids? There's the opportunity of creating the space, which has all of its difficulties, as we just heard. But what what have you learned through the journey? What have you seen through the journey that are the things that really kind of support that journey that you're talking about? It's so interesting you ask me all these questions that have shown up just recently, like with everything in Freedom Prep. And some of these things were somewhat lost during the pandemic, and I'm working to bring them back. Our mission is to prepare all students in grades now pre-K through 12 to excel in college and in life. But there are three core pillars to that mission that's been from the very beginning, very first charter application. One is that a student has to have just a strong academic foundation in general. We often were getting kids that were far behind academically. We had to catch them up. The second thing is that they have to have strong character. Tell people all the time, you can be super smart, you can have excellent grades, but if you're a jerk, you're not going to go far in life. Certain ones do, but they shouldn't, right? But we tell them they have to have strong character. So there's a character education piece to it as well. And the third part is exposure. And so because we get kids that look like me, We serve kids mainly in some of the poorest neighborhoods in Memphis. It is really important for us to expose them to things that they otherwise would not be exposed to at an early age so that they can feel competitive once they do go to these colleges and universities. Part of that exposure is what I call field lessons every single year. It's interesting because when I talk about Bria, who is graduating from Vanderbilt Law School, she graduated from Xavier in New Orleans for undergrad. We took the sixth graders on the train, Amtrak train, from Memphis to New Orleans to visit some of these colleges and also do a community service project. And it was battles, right? Because, I mean, what parent, especially if your child has never really been anywhere and overnight, having to convince them, no, they're going to be safe. We promise we've got them. We're going to take them on the train. I know they've never been on the train. So we had to convince families, just hold our hands, come with us on this journey. I guarantee you it's going to pay off in the long run. And it did. 
Bria went to Xavier in New Orleans. Bria went to law school knowing I graduated from law school. But we want to expose kids to these things early on. It made me think of just recently, I went to, I took my sister and my niece to an Easter egg hunt at one of our funders' mansions. My sister, even though my sister is only a few years younger than me, had never been exposed to that level of wealth. And I have been around it for a while just because I'm exposed to a lot of our philanthropic partners who are amazing and generous, but they also have significant amounts of wealth. And the lifestyles and the difference is just night and day. And my sister in her 40s was like, wow. She's like, I don't know whether to be excited or angry that there's so many people that don't have this. And I say, yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah, I mean, this is, the, this is the state of this country, which is why I do the work that I do and continue to do this work. But even that was exposure that a 40-something-year-old woman had never been exposed to. I want my kids to be exposed to those things. So you go to a wealthy person's house and you're comfortable. You know exactly like you know what forks to use. You know, because different classes have very different lifestyles. And often folks, I mean, in most classes don't know what the other classes' lifestyles are like. I want my kids to be exposed to every single layer, to know exactly anywhere they go, they feel comfortable and they can have conversations. And that's kind of that exposure pillar that we always have for kids. And I've seen it wholeheartedly, and I even see it now in the kids that have graduated from Freedom Prep. That's been so important to them, to go on these college visits, to go on trips out of town at the end of the year, to go. I took some kids on their first flight. I didn't fly until I was 18. So like those things are are important. And I wished I had because I hate flying because I was old enough to be afraid of it at that point. But I want to expose our kids much earlier to those things so that they feel comfortable navigating the world and understanding how big and beautiful the world is versus their little space in Memphis. They need to know what's out there and know what opportunities are out there for them. And what do you mean by character Mm -hmm. at Freedom Prep? What does that mean? Yep. So character is constantly teaching them our core values. It's a couple of things. Our core values are respect, responsibility, integrity, community, and excellence. And so we are always stressing those core values, not only with the kids, but also with the adults. What does it mean to respect other people? Which we lost a lot of that with the pandemic and post-pandemic and the way that people treat each other. What does it mean to be responsible? What does it mean to be a part of your community? So community is really important as well, too, because it requires our community to really, truly educate and raise children and to raise children the way they should be. One of the examples is we talk about community of freedom prep and we have what's called community circle. So the kids play the djembe drama, they come around the circle and we talk about the core values. We may tell a story, but if a member of the community, so if there's a kid that's done something and they've gotten suspended away from school, when they come back, they must apologize to the community. I broke the values of this community and can I come back? Will you accept me to come back to get my education? It's hard now because I feel like we lost so much of that during the two years of being away from each other and not being able to touch people or to talk to people. And our kids in particular, because social media is so huge for them, I think they also lose it. They lose the ability to communicate and the ability to understand what community means. But community is so important for us. And we constantly remind our kids of it at Freedom Prep. 
we give them, they have what's called paycheck dollars. You lose paycheck dollars for bad behavior and then you gain them for things that you've done well. So we used to have kids that would find five actual dollars, like real money, and then turn it back in and say, do I get paycheck dollars for showing community or showing integrity, right? And we would, we would give them freedom prep paycheck dollars, but we're teaching them even at an early age, that's integrity. Oh my God, that's integrity. That's responsibility. And it's just constantly kind of reinforcing those core values. Just like a parent raises a child and gives them certain core values and character traits. We try to do the exact same thing and constantly repeating it to them as children. The other reason is honestly, because we educate black and brown children. And black and brown children don't have a lot of second chances in life. And so we try our best to like, you got to do this. We may be super strict. We may be reinforcing this, but that's because if you get arrested, the chances of us talking that cop out of taking you to jail are slim. You're not like your counterpart that lives in the suburbs, right? And so we have to teach you not only how to have strong character, but also how to navigate the space and the universe and the world that they're in right now. I've been sitting with this question since you talked about the philanthropic partners and the huge splits that exist in this country, and it feeds into what you just said, or fits with what you just said too, there's potentially reinforcing a system that doesn't give second chances to black and brown folks, but also recognizing that that's the reality right now, or that's the reality that we're living in and we're creating something different, but it's going to take a long time for those trees to bear fruit, right? I mean, hopefully not, but it may. I'm curious how you hold those splits in your life, how you make sense of that. It's obvious from knowing you a little bit and hearing your story today that you have a deep and probably wide spiritual system or belief or path. And I'm wondering, so two questions, how do you hold those things that seem so disparate from each other and then walk between them as a fundraiser, as a steward of social change? And how do you hold that in your in yourself? How do you navigate that? That's, that's interesting. So I shared with my sister, it's interesting, although my sister and I, our birthdays are three days apart, we're really different. <laughs> we're like super different, right? Three days apart, three years, of course, but just very different. I shared with her, I said, you know, I think it was James Baldwin. I hope I have it right. But it was a quote where he said, to be Black in America and conscious is not be a constant state of rage, right? And I was like, this is what you're kind of feeling. You're wrestling with that right now. And you've never really had to wrestle because you haven't seen it before. And then I shared with her, I said, it's even more stark in South Africa. I was like, I literally saw mansions on the hill and then slums and shanty towns down below. I know that if I compartmentalize really well, sometimes to my detriment, right? And I know that the rage doesn't help me be here longer for my people. So Black people suffer from high blood pressure, diabetes, and it's no coincidence. It doesn't have anything to do with the color of our skin. It has to do with the treatment that we receive, period, in this country. Like Those things add to our stress. They add to our anxiety. They add to our anger and our rage. But I also know that I can't continue to be effective in the long run for generations below me. I can't create more me's. I can't create more Justin Pierce's, Justin Johnson's. I can't create more Bria Black's if I give in to that. Is it hard? It's, it's ridiculously hard, right? It's, it, there are times when I am frustrated, but then I have to remind myself. And like you said, it's going to take a while to remind myself that this is a marathon and not a sprint. Me getting arrested, me getting angry does not help my people anymore. It's interesting. I was talking to one of my colleagues whose son got arrested. And this is a child who had never been in trouble. And I wanted to cry, like just hearing her story about that. 
her son's father wanted to show up. And then this was in Mississippi. So Mississippi is also another different, it's a different ball game. And her son's father wanted to show up and go off and stand on top. I said, me too. I would have been there standing on top because there are times like when it's family and I'm like, I would have been there standing on top of the table. She said, if I had done that, he'd still be arrested. And I was like, you're right. And I think about that in my daily work. So yes, I want to scream. Yes, I want to go off. Yes, I want to say very different things and navigate spaces very differently. And if I did that, I know that I would not be around to continue to do the work that in the long run is beneficial for my people. So I think that's how I kind of think about it. And I compartmentalize like, yep, I got to do this. I got to do this. I know that I don't come across outwardly as like rage, rage, rage. And I'm not normally because stress kills you, takes you out. But I also purposely keep it at a level because I need to, it's like folks say, we got to have a seat at the table. I need to have a seat at the table. I know that I was put here to do certain things and that if I acted in certain ways that I want to act sometimes, I wouldn't be around in a multiple ways to do those things that I was put here to do. Where do you get the strength to hold all of that, to feel that yeah. and, also, and then stay with where does that come from? It's got to come from my ancestors. Like, it's got, like, that's the yeah. only, it's got to come from God or my ancestors. And in my office, and you all can see it, it's a wall of like all these schoolhouses and black and white pictures of schoolhouses and black folks before. And I read over the break the book Kindred. And so I often have to kind of call on them. You all went through so much more. Like I haven't had to shed blood for this movement. And I don't know that I, you know, would I shed blood for this movement, but they did. And so when I think about that, I'm like, okay, this is nothing compared to what they've been through. And they put me in this position and they keep giving me the strength. I always have to call on them. Give me the strength. Give me the words. Give me the courage to do what I need to do in this circumstance. Give me the right words to say in this instance, because I'm not done. You'll let me know when I'm done. Okay, I'm not done now. Even when I'm on a plane and it's turbulent, I'm like, Lord, am I done? I know I'm not done. So it's, we're going to be okay. Right? <laughs> I'm like, okay, all right. I know I'm not done. So I'm not done with this work. And so I have to call on them. And I mean, I just think about it. There is a quote and I can't remember where it comes from, but it was basically like, we are the ones that survived. And so from the middle passage, the people that I serve, my blood, my stock are the people that actually survived that. To survive coming across the waters during those times and those awful circumstances. So the strength that is in my blood that's running through my veins is unreal. And I have to remind myself and think about that all the time during the really tough times. Like we are the ones that actually survived that. My people survived so much even once they got to this country. My grandmother, who was a Fire. I mean, firestorm. Little woman, maybe five feet tall. And I remember hearing stories about her cussing out white men. And I was like, I wouldn't even do that. But I know that that blood that runs through my veins, like I know there are times that she comes through and she speaks for me when there's tough moments. My grandfather, who I started doing research recently, grew up in Arkansas, Southern Arkansas. Like my mom used to say her grandfather, he was biracial, but white people thought he was white. And so they would speak to him and not speak to the grandchildren thinking, didn't know that he was related to them. I think about how they had to navigate the world and it's a no brainer to discipline myself to do the things that I have to do despite the hard times because of what they did and how they set up the space for me to even be here to do the work that I do. 
And I love conversation. Y'all are pulling out stuff that I never, like I never get to articulate or think about, but this is great. Like it, it makes me reflect on these things. I'm really struck we do a lot of soul work with people who are coming into awakening their, you know, it goes back to the shaman, awakening mm-hmm. their sense of what's my piece of the puzzle, what's my work to do. And I would have to agree with that shaman. Yours is very strong in you. Mm-hmm. There's a very mm-hmm. strong sense in you of, yeah, this is my piece. This is my piece of the puzzle to do and I'm going to do it. And, yeah, I'm going to hate it sometimes. I'm going <laughs> to like it sometimes and I'm going to do mm-hmm. it because it's my contribution. Mm-hmm. To what is. And I was thinking of you describing the founding of Freedom Prep and you described it like a birth. And I have this assumption that after we birth an idea and it manifests, it does have its own life and it has its own soul. And if you were to describe the soul of Freedom Prep and its evolution, is there anything that comes up for you mm-hmm. in that? So I would say that right now, the soul of Freedom Prep is kind of like a teenager. It's because it was hit with the pandemic in its like middle school years, if I think about it as a person or as a child. And so now it has come out of that with a lot of damage, to be frank. You know, like there, there have been a lot of people that have left the organization. There's been a lot of changes. There's been a shift to just the personality and the way that we even work nowadays. And so as an organization, I think we're a teenager finding our way in space again and what we're going to put our footing down on. So there's so many foundational things that we did before in terms of like uniform the way that kids came in, certain cultural things, even things like cell phones, that those things need to shift. There's also things that we need. There's more that we need to provide for families. Like before we were like college prep, college prep, math, literacy, this and that. No, we've got to provide much more to families. And we we have to figure out a way to do those things. And so we're kind of like a teenager evolving into who we're going to become. The soul is evolving into who it's going to become as an adult. But it's definitely going through the acne, like we get some acne and all types of like craziness as a teenager now. I think it's not many people that have been here from beginning or even 10 plus years, but even those folks, including me, I call myself a dinosaur in the work, had some kind of growth pains on, okay, I have to change this. Or I'm not like, I kept saying, no, 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 it always worked. Why would we not keep doing this? No, that doesn't. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense nowadays. It really didn't make sense before the pandemic, but the pandemic exposed weaknesses and exposed, it forced people to either grow or die, right? And so we've taken the path of we've got to grow. This organization has got to continue. And so we have to shift. And the soul has to evolve into doing different things for families and for our work. Birmingham was part of kind of that evolution prior to the pandemic. The way that we approach Alabama and Birmingham is looking a little bit different because of that. And so it's definitely evolved over the years to be much more than just a college prep organization for kids. Yeah, I mean, I think we talked about this when we were together. I just noticed as I look at the education system after the pandemic, how because of the break in the way things were, everything is up in the air. You know, Mm -hmm. I think I was reading the stats the other day around kids going to school, like having leave. It's like, okay to have leave. I mean, we we were all off, you know. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering as you're wrestling and Freedom Prep is wrestling with it, what are the challenges in the education system? What do you see in terms of like, how is that growth shaping or not? 
So prior to the pandemic, our kids were already behind, not to the fault of their own and actually not to the fault of the hardworking educators that educated them. It's just they started out behind. Like I noticed early childhood, if you have educated parents or educated people around you, you speak very differently to your child. Like I speak to my two-year-old niece very intentionally and I use words intentionally on purpose. That is different. It's very different. And unfortunately, the children that we serve. So our kids are showing up in kindergarten even far behind. The pandemic shot us back even more years. And then you have that and you have the, I'll just call it, because I'm an employer and employers are like bad words now, but I'll call it a different way that people are approaching work. And so we probably should be working even harder to get our kids where we need to be. But the adults are unwilling to do that. And I haven't figured out the answer to it. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what the balance is. There has to be some balance. But what's disheartening for me is so many people that have decided to just, it's about me. I got to take care of me. And what it does is it leaves an entire generation of kids poorly undereducated because of it. And so to me, the biggest challenge is like the amount of work is not the challenge. It's the adults willing to do what it really, truly takes. And we can't do that behind computer screens. Virtual learning did not work for us at all. And as much as I would love for us to be able to and for adults to be able to have that balance, I understand it fully. I have not had that balance. I'm working to seek that balance in my life. But the way that education is structured right now, 180 days of school, this amount of time in school, that is not enough time for where our kids are now. For me to truly say to a parent, yep, you put your child in freedom prep here, you don't have to worry about another school to college. That was true years before the pandemic. It was true when I first started freedom prep. We could get them there. We worked incredibly hard. It's not necessarily true now. And there has to be a middle ground. I don't know if it's bots. I don't know what it is, but there has to be something to where we can have the adults. The adults have balance, but we also have the adults work hard enough to get the kids where they need to be. I don't know if this is going to be possible to answer, but you were spoke so eloquently about where you see the soul and the evolution of freedom prep right now and what's hindered it and how you're going to continue to develop I'm curious about either whatever feels most alive for you, the educational system in this country, in the United States, where's the soul of education right now? Or where's the soul of the country on that spectrum? I mean, I don't know, to be honest. Like, And it's not necessarily pessimist, but it feels like the soul is lost to an extent, right? It's kind of like someone that goes to the doctor. They don't know what's wrong with them. And the doctor's like, take this, take, they're just throwing things at the problem without going to the core of what's really happening. And I think that's what's, I see that happening. Teachers and educators are asking for my money. They've always needed to be paid more money. I'm not certain that's the answer, to be honest. Like, I think that there, there's some fundamental core things that need to be changed and things that people aren't talking about. I don't necessarily know what those are, but I don't think that throwing money is an American thing. We throw money at a lot of things and it works, but I don't think that that's the answer to this problem. This is a systemic problem that existed prior to the pandemic. The pandemic opened up the wounds more and you've got a lot more complexities, but I, I think folks are lost right now and no one is asking the real questions of what do we truly need to do. Like crime in Memphis right now, particularly juvenile crime, is at an all-time high. 12-year-olds carjacking. Never seen anything like that. Everyone either goes to, well, they need to be locked up like adults. 
doesn't really solve the problem. It just takes them kind of off the streets, right? What is the core of the problem? And I don't think we've really asked ourselves, what is the core of the problem in education? Is it that we're asking teachers to do much? Yeah, we, we are absolutely asking teachers and educators to do too much. We have to be everything for everybody. Maybe the answer is there are far more organizations that partner on a daily basis in schools. We have so many education-adjacent organizations. That's what I like to call education-adjacent. Like they, they're going to touch us a little bit, but they're not going to be in the school day-to-day. Then maybe that they got to come in closer and they have to touch us much, much more often. There's a lot of consultants, a lot of people that want to tell us what to do, but they're not on the front lines. Even if you paid educators like corporate America, this work would still be ridiculously hard for you as a human being. Like I try to tell people the things that I have to, like the work is hard, but the things that happen to our children, our families, you can't even explain or get past. You have to have mechanisms to keep yourself grounded and balanced when you hear those things. That is something that you can't describe. And that is absolutely something that you don't deal with in corporate America. And so we have to get to the root cause and the core of the issues in education now. And I think we're just kind of scratching the surface. Like Tennessee is saying there's a minimum salary for teachers, $50,000. That's great until that kid throws that desk at you, right? It doesn't matter. Like $50,000 is great and the kid throws a desk at you. You still won't walk out the door. And so I don't know what the answer is. I do feel like, though, no one is asking the right questions and no one is trying to get to the root cause and the core of what's wrong with our education system as is. And why are other countries excelling and not seeming to have been bothered by the pandemic, right? But in America, it was like an atomic bomb went off in education. Every other industry has recovered to an extent. They're still kind of struggling in some ways, but education is still still not recovered and folks are begging people to stay in it. If you were to take that another step, obviously you're not claiming that you're speaking for Mm -hmm. everyone in education, but what do you think are some of the core problems or Mm -hmm. to put you on the spot here, but I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm really curious from your perspective. Poverty and mental health. I think those are the two biggest things. No one has solved either, but I also think we have been, again, just throwing spaghetti on the wall and seeing what sticks versus actually really digging deep into what's happening. Like, why are kids not going to school? Why are parents opting out of kids going to school? Why are parents dropping them off late? Why are kids coming in so far behind? Maybe we don't start pre-K at three years old. Maybe we start pre-K at two. Like, when kids are able to even sort of figure out words, maybe that's when we start pre-K. We get kids super early. But I do think that those two big things, and mental health is huge nowadays. What we're seeing with kids and even with adults is something that I've never seen in all the years I've been in education. And so we've got to figure out what's going on mental health wise and really address that and then start to address the core challenges and issues with poverty that are happening on the ground to help educators do their job. Because those two things prevent us from doing our job, really, to be honest. All of the implications of that prevent us from doing our job. If a kid is coming from poverty and a kid is hungry, they can't learn if they're hungry. And so then by the time we feed them, they have missed half an hour of the lesson. And so it's all these things that kind of like it's a snowball effect that prevents kids that come from circumstances that are not of their design, but prevent them from truly successfully accessing the education that we want to provide to them so that they can change the trajectory of their lives and their families' lives. What do you think is the school's role in mental health? 
how do you support that? Because I can imagine that there's a whole component, you said community and meaning and the feeling of purpose and a feeling of a bigger world, all these things that would seem to contribute to one's mental health. We need to do more. We, we, we have social workers at every campus and I've seen schools and networks that are doing a whole lot more and I truly admire them. We have social workers at every campus. We have a grant now to where we're trying to get a mental health therapist for our adults. But we've got to do more. We've got to do more to address, I think, the acute issues and then the day to day. We need to have yoga and meditation for our kids on a daily basis, right? Even if they don't necessarily take to it, at least they have access to tools that support mental health. We always address things after the fact, but I think we need to address them early on. We need to address healthy eating. Your gut does a lot to your entire body and your system. Your gut affects what's going on in your brain. And our kids show up, and I used to, they would show up with flaming Hot Cheetos in the morning. I would just take them from them. I'm like, no, you're not eating this. You are absolutely not eating this. But there is no system for us to say, this is what you eat. You know, we don't take the cheat. I never had Cheetos and handed them an apple because I didn't have it. But I would just take the Cheetos, right? We're giving kids a lot of sugary things. And not everybody believes it, but it affects everything. It affects how you move. It affects how you think, all of those things. And I think that we have to figure out a way despite everything else we have to do as educators, to incorporate strategies for mental health for our kids on a daily basis. Like we have reset corners. We have things that are, they're not necessarily gimmicky, but we also don't have the adults. Adults are suffering too. So the adults don't even necessarily know how to use the tools that they're, they're, they're given, right? We have incorporated Wellness Wednesdays at our school for the adults. We got a small select group that always come and the rest of them are like, I'm not going to that. And then they end up having a mental health crisis, right? But nobody like nobody is sitting on a daily basis. Oh, just try it, right? Just try this. I know it sounds crazy. It sounds all hippie and all, but just try these things. And no one is having a large scale conversation of we got a problem. There is a problem and it's not just going to a therapist. There are things you have to do to keep yourself balanced. I know when I don't do the things I'm supposed to, I'm like, yep, I know what's going on right now. I have not been taking my supplements. I have not been walking. I haven't been doing the things to keep me balanced. And so many people have not been exposed to that, particularly in our communities. And so we've got to do something on a consistent basis or things are just going to get worse. And we have to acknowledge nobody's right. We're not back to normal, right? The pandemic may be over, but it's not over in any way or fashion. And we tried to just go back to the status quo and normal. And there is no, there there is a new normal. And we have to acknowledge and say that and repeat that and say, this is what the new normal looks like. We're going to have morning meditation every morning for kids. We're going to have this. Like instead of nap time, nap time is great, but we should teach them meditation in the morning even five-year-olds, to help regulate themselves. Like I talked to my niece and we have stare-downs. She's two years old. We have stare-downs in conversations, (laughs) but there are ways to even regulate their emotions, even at a young age when they don't even know what that means to regulate emotions. Yeah. 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 I just want to pick up on one thing too, that that pandemic being over but never acknowledged, that we all went through this huge collective trauma and different Mm -hmm. forms of it for everybody. You know, everyone's (laughs) dealing with it differently. It just kind of trailed off and everyone's like, yeah, now we're back to normal rather than marking that, whoa, that was a big Mm -hmm. shift, a big, you know, caused a lot of pain for a lot of people, tremendous pain. And we've never sort of had a ceremony around that. Exactly. Or like now we're in the new normal. Let's be available to that. So 
also part of that mental health equation is that ceremony and ritual. And yes. you go through something hard, you lose someone, you yes. you acknowledge it, right? Exactly. And we've never done that. And you purge those feelings, right? You purge those yes. feelings and acknowledge yeah. that triggers bring back that trauma. Like there are triggers nowadays that yeah. bring back yeah, the, absolutely. the trauma. You don't even like, we were on a shuttle bus, my sister and my niece, it was packed with people. We were like, we could have done this two years ago, but yeah, you're right. We haven't had a funeral, right? For what happened. We haven't had that. To be quite frank, everything that you're saying just resonates for me as a parent of my girls. And I kept on hearing in it, in the story of civil rights, dealing with the way things are. And then as we were coming in post pandemic, also dealing with the way things are, but also there being a lot of points as you were talking where the way things are just seems unfixable or broken mm -hmm. beyond repair. And when I'm in those moments, I thought we might do something a bit different. We're nearing towards the end of the interview, but just to take a moment, a pause. And in that pause, I'd be really curious of what you envisage of the way things could be, not mm -hmm. as they are now, but in a future, in the way they, they could be at Freedom Prep, and just to see what that vision brings you after a few moments. So whenever you're ready, just taking a moment, just to imagine mm -hmm. that and see what comes. Mm. You know, the way that I envision it, at, at some point, our kids are leading us more than we're leading them. I think that my work will somewhat be done when we get to that point. Like, they're leading us. I get bits and pieces of it where kids are like, well, can we do this? Or should we do this? Or how do we manage this? I got moments of it years ago when our kids did a walkout when I think Trump was elected. And I was like, wait a second, y'all are walking down an all black school. Why are y'all walking? But then I realized, I was like, they just need, they need, you know, they need something. They need to show their feelings. In my perfect world, our kids are leading us in the movement, really in middle school and high school. And they are conscious of what's happening in the world around them and seeking their path of how to be a participant in the work whatever that work may be. In the future, I see my kids and kids from Freedom Prep being in positions where it would be impossible to expel two really sharp legislators. Like they don't, we have the numbers to beat that. Like I have this grand theme of the reverse migration where all the people of color that moved to the Northeast come back down South and really say, yep, this is where our ancestors landed and this is where we're gonna make a difference in this country. You see bits and pieces and pockets of it, but I don't think that we truly recognize the power that we have in our history, our background, what's in our DNA, and really in our numbers. If we look at the numbers, I see my kids being judges. I see them being head of police departments. And the fact that in the Tyree Nichols case, the cops got indicted so quickly, it was because of the Black woman police chief. She was like, it's a no-brainer. That was a really easy decision to make. That should be happening all over the country. And it can be if I send enough kids out in this world that have the option to go to college, that have the education to do what they want to do in life. But that's the way that I, I mean, I'm an Aquarius. We want to save the world, right? We know we can't, but that's our, like, our everyday mission is like, we got to save the world. And so in my mind, I've got to get my people on a level playing field. So, so at least we have a fighting chance. Pearson and Justin had no fighting chance. They didn't have a majority. Even though Memphis is probably one of the blackest cities in America, the rest of Tennessee is not. They didn't have a chance in terms of numbers and what those numbers wanted to do. 
That could change the more we educate kids at Freedom Prep and allow them to move to East Tennessee and become senators and become legislators and become mayors of those towns. And so that's kind of where I see it. I see our kids leading us because I don't have, I mean, I might look young, but I, I know that my time is limited in the amount of work that I can do. And so I need more kids, multiple versions of kids like me and with this passion and fire to continue on the work and the way that they see that they should continue on the work. Picture I have in my head is the kids from Freedom Prep. I kind of had this picture of what was the U.S., and then these kids kind of standing up in the different places with very like straight backs and open hearts. And mm-hmm. in that, being able to actually lead with the character and heart, devotion and surrender, I will say, that we've learned through hearing your story today. It's such an honour to know you and such an honour to hear your story today. Thank you so much. Thank you all so much. I want to say one more thing, the, the image that I have sitting here was you talked about your ancestors. I imagined blood ancestors. Mm -hmm. And then I, as you were talking about the children and I remembered your first graduate, I'm going to pronounce her name wrong. Gaysery. 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 Yeah. Gaysery. And I also thought of spiritual ancestors Mm -hmm. and how the people like that inspired you, Nat Turner and Malcolm X as spiritual ancestors and you as a spiritual ancestor of all of those young people that are following your in your footsteps. So just I want to repeat Miriam's sense of the privilege of being able to witness that in you and in the stories that you told and Thank you. just to know you and, and know that you're we're walking together on this planet yes. right now makes me feel a little bit better about it, about the world, where it's going. So. Thank you all. Thank you for the opportunity. It started spinning wheels in my head too. So thank you. Thank you for listening to the Beyond Listening Podcast. For more information on how to adapt to a world of rapid change and flux for yourself, your organization, and your community, visit us at weareopencircle.com.